Welcome to episode 9 of the podcast, Memoirs of a Nigerian in Christ. This will be part 3 of chapter 4, Marriage and the Newlywed Blues. Enjoy. As much as I am graced to be my husband's wife, he is equally equipped, maybe more, to be my husband. When I think about all the options I had for marriage, I am convinced that marrying anyone else would have led me to disaster. Had I chosen any of the men from my past, I would either be divorced or unhappily married as we speak. For all the years I have been trying to do romance by my own wisdom, I picked the men who suited what I wanted in that moment. Although I thought about marriage a lot, I would say I obsessed about it. I did not always give enough thought to who I would be in the future, only the woman I knew in the present. Certain men were okay for me when I had no clue what I wanted out of a partner. When you lack direction, any destination will do. I may do with whatever hand I was dealt. I never considered that it would take a certain kind of man to see me beyond my trauma and envision the woman I was supposed to be. Back when I was dating from my dysfunction, I did not realize that I would one day have the desire to live a life of godliness or to fulfill God's specific purpose for my life. Now imagine marrying a man who would have been embarrassed by the details of my past and who is mortified when I speak about my experiences to others. Being tied to such a partner would have killed me. He would never have given me the freedom to be myself, and that alone would have caused me to shrivel up and die inside. The dreams that God placed in my heart would have died with me. Had I married a man who cared more about my title as an attorney and my capacity to earn than about my character, we would have never survived the years when my careers languished. He would have resented my inability to earn and most likely refused to be the only working spouse while I pursued my dreams. My husband pushed me out of my comfort zone by challenging my fears and making me do hard things, but he also extended grace towards me in a way that could have only been inspired by the Holy Spirit. He did not make me feel guilty or unworthy when I struggled to find my feet in my chosen career path. He shouldered the burden of providing for our household and granted me freedom to chase my dreams and refine my passion and calling as a writer. Over the last 36 years of my life, and especially since I became an adult, I have encountered many men who balk at the notion of having to provide for a wife because they do not want the burden of taking care of another adult. If I had the misfortune of marrying a man who saw my years of struggling to find my feet financially as a personal burden to him, I would have been a miserable wife indeed. I thank God that my husband was created to cover me 
through those seasons of our marriage. And he has done a fantastic job, even till today. It matters who you marry. My husband is the only man who has ever challenged my tender seeds as a people pleaser. He literally does not care about public opinion. While I have spent years obsessing about the opinions of those who have no heaven or hell to put me into, there was a time in my life where what I wore, who I befriended, where I went, and which relationship I pursued all depended on what would garner people's best opinion of me rather than what was according to the standard set by God. I was in such bondage to the opinion of others that one unkind word or criticism would undo my entire mood for days or weeks at a time. I genuinely wanted to be liked by everyone, as unreasonable as that desire may have been. The desire to be accepted kept me from openly confronting issues with others. I wanted likability more than I desired to be honest. I would often stuff my emotions only to explode or become passive aggressive at the slightest provocation. Fear of rejection made hypocrisy the only answer. I would be whatever anyone needed me to be. If they gave me their approval, that was reward enough. I did not have the courage to sit face to face with others and communicate my boundaries or my disappointments. I have learned since that being afraid to ask for what you need is a trauma response. Past rejection had me convinced that my needs were unreasonable and better left unspoken. My husband has no such hangups. He is kind, but he is always forthright. So much so that the first time he told me a hard truth, I wanted to hide for cover. In case you were wondering what was said, he basically called me out for using my fear of failure as a crutch for my laziness. Ouch. One of the things I have come to expect from my husband is that he will not shy away from difficult conversations. He will have uncomfortable conversations with anyone he cares about because it is in his character to be straightforward. Thanks to our marriage, I have learned the courage in the face of disagreements. And I now know that it is acceptable to speak my mind to a loved one, even when I am unhappy with them. There is a way to speak a hard truth with love. Being with my husband has given me the freedom to be my true self and the courage to walk the path that was carved out especially for me. A husband who expected perfection from me would have crushed my spirit. As much as I used to believe that I was destined to marry a man who was perfectly groomed and poised for some big ministry stage, I know now that my insecurities would have eaten me alive with such a partner. I would have deemed myself unworthy of someone so seemingly perfect. A husband who never has a hair out of place would have only inspired my pretended perfection. I would have sacrificed my authenticity for his approval. I am not yet graced to partner with a man on a world stage. My character is being refined every day and I cherish the privilege of making my mistakes in private where the Lord can correct me away from the watchful eyes of the world. 
There was a time that I was so hungry for attention that I would expose my wounds prematurely only for them to heal improperly. Any attention, even the negative kind, spurred on by making a spectacle of myself was better than being forgotten and alone. Imagine the mess if I had married someone with the motivation that my husband would somehow elevate me to this improperly desired platform. Even if I arrived at center stage, I would have crashed and burned if the only thing sustaining me is a heart that loves attention for attention's sake. Imagine me snatching the microphone only for the world to discover that I have nothing of substance to say. I finally understood that there is something far worse than being forgotten or obsolete. Being remembered or infamous for all the wrong things. Chasing fame for the sake of fame is an empty pursuit. And it hints at the emptiness lying inside the one with those desires. When I began to see myself through God's eyes and realize that I am enough as I am in the quiet of my life as it is right now, the inordinate affection for notoriety gave way to the quiet contentment of a life lived in the service of the God of the universe. In short, God saved me from myself. He gave me what I needed, not what I thought I wanted. Marrying the right man has given me the secret sauce I need to thrive. The right man is a covering. The wrong one is a lid. The right man protects his wife as she grows into her full self. The wrong man constrains her. If her husband is a lid, his goal is to keep his wife from outgrowing him. A cover will stretch to fit the container. A lid is rigid. A cover can accommodate whatever it is designed to protect, whether it shrinks or grows. A lid can only keep what is inside from getting out. When the lid fails, there is a boiling over and it is a mess for everyone. I regularly advise my brothers in Christ not to marry a woman they cannot cover. Do not marry a woman because you want to change or quote, break her. Because there are men who believe it is their job to break in their wife as if she were a wild animal to be tamed. Gross. Marry her for who she is right now and who God called her to be down the line. If you cannot handle either one, please walk away. In Christian circles, I see men who marry ambitious, visionary women, then complain if their wives will not forsake their dreams to live a more simple life. Many of these challenges can be saved by honest conversations prior to marriage. But unfortunately, even when both parties have communicated their expectations, many couples have entered into marriage only to realize they want something different than what they initially discussed with their partners. There are women who are willing to make the sacrifice of giving up a career and a calling 
that they love in order to keep the peace in their home. But if God has called her to be in the marketplace, then secluding herself out of the territory that is hers to subdue feels wrong in every sense of the word for women who are called to lead in places outside of their homes, in corporations or ministries or government, for example. Giving up that God-given desire can be tough. I'm not saying it is impossible, but it's not without much prayer, humility, and a consistent willingness to submit to the leadership of God through their husband. Any woman who stifles her desires in order to please her husband may find herself resentful of him. I have seen examples of women who, contrary to their husband's wishes, have pursued their dreams and broken up their homes in the process. I do not believe that achieving our dreams at the altar where we sacrificed our marriage is God's design for husband and wife. What looks more like Jesus and his church to me is a husband who covers his wife in everything that God, not her own fleshly desires, has called her to do. And a wife who willingly lays down her own preferences for the good of her husband and her marriage. There are also women whom God has called to steward the home to the exclusion of all others. These are full-time stay-at-home mothers and wives. They are graced for marriage and motherhood in a way that seems especially unique and heaven-sent to women like me who struggled before we found our feet in our roles at home. They are often the tightest two women that the Bible advises to teach younger women how to love their husbands and children. These women have the grace to excel at home and choose to stay out of the workforce in order to do the work of raising their families and supporting God's vision for their home. If after marriage, their husbands push these wives into the workforce, chaos can ensue. I lived in this tension as a mom of a newborn. After both my children were born, my desires shifted drastically from desiring a certain career to wanting to stay at home with my children. Whenever I felt forced out of my time as a stay-at-home mother, I deeply resented it. Husbands who feel entitled to their wife's support but do not yet understand what is needed to help their wives embrace their natural giftings may be looking for their partners to be something that God never intended for them to be. A husband seeking his wife's financial contribution through a paycheck may be missing the fact that God has gifted her to support him financially by taking care of the home and leaving him free to provide for their family. A wife who is talented with budgeting, management, and oversight does not necessarily want to be the CFO for a corporation. She may feel most led to apply those same skill sets within her home. A husband who does not recognize or understand such a conviction on his wife's part would feel that she is denying him her support. This could become a point of contention between the couple. 
has a new wife. I can no longer count how many times I have been told by other Nigerians that it is my responsibility to work as well as take care of the home. Staying at home as a wife when your husband is not a millionaire was deemed to be laziness on my part. Much like our American counterparts, Nigerian women in the past were mostly domesticated. But this is the 21st century, and we are now in America for goodness sake, the culture says. No wife should reasonably expect to stay home and not bring in an income to support her husband's effort. Do you want to kill him? The older women would ask. In my own experience, being a full-time stay-at-home wife and mom when your husband is not, quote, rich, is still frowned upon in our culture, whether that culture be American or Nigerian. Detention does not always come from those outside the marriage. Oftentimes, the tension is between husband and wife as each person struggles to manage their expectation of the other. There are plenty of men who love the idea of a woman, but struggle with the reality of being her husband. The Proverbs 31 woman that so many men claim to be looking for was that kind of woman because her husband was a Proverbs 31 man. He valued her opinion. He trusted her input and her skills. He did not try to hoard her resources for his own use. He did not treat her like his competition. She was given the space to be fully herself, and her husband reaped the rewards along with the rest of her household. Some men love the idea of being with a woman of power and influence. They imagine walking hand in hand with her as the power couple. But what happens when these women begin to operate in their gifts and callings beyond what their husbands can even fathom? What happens when the wife is being called to preach and speak to thousands and the husband is needed at home to provide stability for their family? If a man is in over his head, he gets jealous. Fights ensue. He feels forgotten or minimalized and takes it out on his wife, believing that she stole his thunder. She, on the other hand, begins to doubt her gifts. Surely, God did not call her to a stage in order to jeopardize her marriage. She might retreat from her gift and crawl back within herself, attempting to shrink back to the size that she was when her husband loved her and she was not a threat to his ego and his ambitions. Without one of the partners choosing their union above his or her own rights, the marriage can end up in crisis. There are also men on the opposite side of this spectrum, men who desire wives who will stay at home with their children manage their fortunes and their homes and give the husband the freedom to go out into the marketplace and make the big kills. 
it is an idyllic picture. But what happens if the man loses the big break he thought he was going to get in his business? Or his job downsizes his position? He is no longer making the income he envisioned for whatever reason. It is going to take more effort than he planned to provide for his family's financial needs. For some men, their wives' desire to stay at home now looks and feels selfish and impractical. Surely she can see that he needs her help. She may resent his request that she enter the workforce, even as he despises her denial of it. This was the tension for my family. My husband and I were okay as newlyweds on his salary, with me staying at home at various seasons to manage our home. However, when we expanded from a family of two to a family of four, still earning the same income, me staying out of the workforce looked and felt very selfish to him. Meanwhile, as a new mom of both an infant and a toddler, the thought of being the primary caregiver for my children while also working a full work week was completely overwhelming. And I hated the pressure of being pushed away from my children and into the labor force. In some other cases, it is the wife who desires to transition out of staying at home to enter the workforce. If it is the woman, that is the one desiring to get into the workforce to alleviate some of the financial pressure on her family. Her husband may feel like she has undermined his leadership of the family by not trusting him to provide. Meanwhile, she feels financially insecure and her effort to work outside of the home are to gain some of that security back. Without a meeting of the minds, they are headed for resentment and disaster. Unless one of them is willing to concede for the sake of love, it is a recipe for catastrophe. As a married woman, I can see from this side the importance of marrying a man to whom you can submit. A husband that I deem as too flawed or unqualified to lead does not free me from the duty of submission. Women often try to escape scripture's requirement for wives to submit by declaring the impossibility of submitting to a man with no vision or substance to his character. Unfortunately, the only solution to the difficulty of having a husband who a wife has deemed unworthy of submission is on the front end. God is not going to excuse us from his command because it is hard to do. If a woman does not want to submit to a man who is unworthy by her own calculation, her best bet is to not marry him. Once we become wives, we have a duty to honor God's command for marriage. Husbands should love, wives should submit. The two are meant to work together and complement one another so that marriage can be not only godly, but also joyous. 
A husband who loves his wife as Christ commands and is willing to serve her even to the point of death would likely meet a wife who trusts his judgment and his character enough to know that he would not lead her into harm. A loving husband makes a submissive wife. And a submissive wife earns her husband's trust to the point that he feels safe to love her as sacrificially as Christ commands. God can see further than all of us in all situations. He dwells in eternity after all. While we are prone to choose spouses that match our present, God always gives us partners that are compatible with our futures. Marriage is not just for right now, it is for life. Only God knows what we will be 30 and 40 years down the line. Only he is equipped to give us the spouse that is most suitable to us. When I first started thinking about marriage, I made up my mind that unless my life was in danger, I was not leaving my marriage. No matter the sacrifice required, I would do everything in my power to ensure that my husband and I had a successful marriage. I did not realize that remaining married would be the easy part. The real work was being happily married. I knew plenty of long-standing marriages that seemed to have gone past their expiration dates because both spouses live separate lives and any areas of crossover in their life together was marked with contempt. I did not want to be miserable in marriage just for the sake of longevity. As a non-confrontational person by nature, I have been conditioned by years of experience to bite my tongue. Even when I began to feel lonely in my marriage because life had gotten in the way of the friendship and deep connection I shared with my husband. Even when our financial differences were weighing heavily on my mind. Even when I was less than satisfied with our intimacy life. Everything in my upbringing had trained me to just shut up and take it. I stayed quiet, but I began to envision a marriage that lacked true joy because of my own unwillingness to speak up for my needs. Then I realized that being miserably married was far worse than having a marriage that fell apart. A marriage that is long-standing but lacking in true joy was a fate worse than death as far as I was concerned. And the fear of living decades with a husband who grew to be nothing more than a stranger in my house gave me the push I needed to start voicing my needs. So, along with deciding that my marriage must last, I also decided that my home must be joyous. And I began the work of finding my own joy in the areas that once looked bleak in our union. When I took my focus off the things that my husband needed to change, I found that I could accommodate almost anything that was lacking on his part to make our lives run smoother. And if it sounds unfair to you for me to be the one doing all the giving, I submit to you that if you are truly committed to your marriage, 
you will have to reckon with the fact that at several points in the life of a marriage, one spouse will be doing more heavy lifting than the other, depending on who is more equipped. For me, I took the Bible seriously when it said that anyone who knows the right thing to do and refuses to do it has sinned. A few things make it easy for me as my husband's wife to do for him what he may not be able to do for us right now. First, I am unequivocally convinced that my husband has a relationship with God and that he knows the voice of the Holy Spirit. If my husband is lacking in something, God will open his eyes and equip him. God may use me to be the source that brings enlightenment, or it may be through another resource, like a book, a sermon, or a conversation with a friend. In any case, I am rest assured that whatever knowledge my husband may not yet have is fully available to him because he is submitted to an all-knowing God. And it's just a matter of time for revelation and opportunity to meet. If my husband was not a believer, this confidence would be off the table. I am glad he's a follower of Christ, so that is that. Second, I am fully convinced that my husband loves me and has my best interest at heart. He has always done his best to protect me, care for me, guide me, and help me in any areas where I need or want him. My husband has never willfully caused me harm, and when he hurts me unintentionally and I give him the opportunity to correct it by confronting the hurt inflicted, which is hard for me, he has always done his best to make amends. This track record between us builds trust. I have no reason to think that my husband will cause me harm either willfully or due to ignorance. Had it been that my husband had violated my trust through an affair or willful sinful behavior, then this trust would not be on the table or it would have to be revealed. If my husband suffered any addictions or mental illness that made it hard for him to make sound decisions, this trust would be hard to exercise on my part. But because that is not the case, and my husband has never violated me in any way that suggests he does not or cannot properly value me, he has earned my trust wholeheartedly in this arena. Because these two things are true, there is nothing I will not do, sacrifice, or try to assure the success of my marriage and the joy of our union. If it means saying yes when my flesh would rather say no, then so be it. If it means giving myself in a way that I do not believe my husband has done for me, then so be it. If it means apologizing, even when I feel as justified in my, in my actions as he does in his, then so be it. If it means sacrificing some fun or leisure 
to do the work that ensures the harmony of my home. Then, so be it. There are some things that I do for my marriage that I will never say out loud because they are not meant for public knowledge. There are some things that others consider foolish or unfair because they are wholly one-sided contributions, but they cultivate a deeper level of joy in my home than words alone can describe. I will gladly continue to be foolish in giving, loving, and sacrificing when I see that the payoff is a marriage that is thriving and a deeper friendship with my husband. I only know my own sacrifices. There is no way for me to know every sacrifice, turmoil, and inner battle that my husband has had to endure in order to properly lead and cover our family because he does not share all of his battles with me out of wisdom and a need to protect me. It is my duty as his God-given partner not to make his load unbearable. How can I make my husband's load unbearable? Mm, By treating him like my enemy. By minimizing his efforts and never expressing satisfaction with anything he does as a husband, leader, father, or friend. By using him as a dumping ground for all of my negative emotions. Treating him like the cause of everything that is wrong in my life. The list is endless, and it takes the grace of God to know how best to navigate your marriage in a way that brings the best out of you and your spouse simultaneously. When I talk about the sacrifice that marriage requires, some think I am being overly gloom and doom in my admonitions. But my words are not to make us fearful, but to make us consider our ways. I am a champion of marriage. Mine has blessed me in ways that never cease to amaze me. But I could have easily destroyed myself if I did not do some quick adjustments from my mindset prior to marriage while I was idealizing what it would be like to the reality of living in a God-ordained covenant with a flesh and blood man with his own issues frailties and shortcomings just like I have mine if I did not switch my thought patterns to expect that my brokenness would be bumping into my husband's for as long as we we remain in the imperfect vessels of our human bodies I probably would have given up on the marriage I wanted joyful full of grace and growing in godly fruit and I would have recused myself to tolerating, quote, that man, unquote, for the rest of our natural lives. One of the best practices that helped me to have the marriage of my dreams is a simple one. It is a lesson I learned early in marriage about the importance of intimacy, but the wisdom did not fully take root in my heart until I received marriage mentoring through Good Thing 101, a program established by Wives in Waiting Global Women's Ministry. What is the practice, you ask? Well, 
I do not turn down my husband's advances. Even if I am not in the mood or I am tired, I do my best to give him a slow yes rather than a fast no. Because except for the few times when I have been too physically ill to be intimate, like during pregnancy, there is no amount of tired that cannot be overcome by a little bit of romance. After I understood what physical touch meant to my husband, physically, spiritually, and emotionally, I began to cherish our time together as something to be savored rather than treating it as an unwanted interruption of my day or my sleep schedule. Prior to this new understanding, intimacy to me, even as a married woman, was something that happened because we are both in a romantic mood. Maybe even a way to top off a night of meaningful conversation and connection. It was a luxury that happened here and there. Not necessarily something we needed daily. In the early days of our marriage, if I was exhausted or distracted with my to-do list, taking time to physically connect with my husband felt like just another thing to do, and I would wave away his advances. Until one day, wisdom had to knock me on my head. By treating my time with my husband as just another thing to do, rather than an experience to be enjoyed, I was cheating myself out of the emotional connection I craved with my husband. For my husband, physical touch is the primary way he connects to me as his wife. This was the launching pad for the rest of our emotional connection. Based on that understanding, I knew that I did not want to be emotionally connected to my husband just here and there. Such a setup would not satisfy me. I wanted to have regular, daily, and ongoing connection with my spouse, and there was no way of enjoying that if I was turning down his advances or placing our time together so far down on my list of priorities that it comes in dead last when anything else comes up. So, with that new understanding, I am now willing to sacrifice sleep, time, or a clean house if it means I get a precious moment in time to genuinely connect with the man I love. Intimacy in marriage is important to God. It is important to my husband and it needed to be important to me. By God's grace, I can say that I have grown in this area. Like most Nigerians in my generation, I was not raised in a sex-positive environment. Our parents did not teach us about sex in a way that celebrated it as a gift given by God to those who are married. All we needed to know about sex, according to our parents, was that we had no business knowing anything about sex. Which explains why I thought I could get pregnant from kissing when I was 10 years old. For years, being raised both in the church and a traditional Nigerian household meant that the negative messaging around sex were constantly being reinforced in and outside of my house. Sex was bad 
and only bad girls did it. No one ever taught me that my raging hormones were a normal part of the teenage experience. They were a normal part of the human experience as well. So I just assumed that I was a freak of nature. Why did my body want something that everyone already told me I was not supposed to like? I never asked my questions to older, more knowledgeable people who could have given me answers because I figured I would be punished for thinking about something so taboo. So I turned to romance novels, soft porn, R-rated movies, and my friends to fill in the gaps in my knowledge. These sources of information did much to sexualize my mind and thoughts long before I understood what physical intimacy was supposed to be about. The longer I took before I educated myself about the physical, emotional, and spiritual implications of sex, the worse my story grew. By the time I reached my late teens and early 20s, I was living by trial and error. I decided to embrace celibacy as a lifestyle, as a young adult, but without addressing the effect of my past traumas, it was only a matter of time before my past replayed itself. Thankfully, by the time I got married, I was already on a long-standing journey of healing my broken understanding of intimacy. I knew that physical intimacy was a gift from God, and I was ready to explore that gift in my marriage. But any physical act that reminded me of my past made me feel dirty, and the this is bad, you shouldn't be doing this, tapes would run in my head over and over again, denying me of the joy of freely giving myself to my husband. Although logically, I knew I was free to do what I wanted in my marriage bed. Subconsciously, my mind could not let go of the idea that good girls do not do X, Y, and Z. Being raised to view physical intimacy as dirty and something only, quote, bad girls did made it impossible to immediately switch gears into married life as a woman who was free to explore the gift with her husband. So, because of my upbringing and the shame that had been packaged since childhood with any exploration of the human body and the pleasure we receive from such exploration. I entered marriage and continued for a while, seeing sex as a nicety, but not a vital aspect of our marriage. Sex to me was like a swimming pool in a house. It's nice to have if you really want it, but you can get along just fine without it. What I have realized over time is that sex is more like the roof. The condition of the roof impacts almost everything else about a house. Similarly, the condition of your sex life can tell a lot about the condition of your overall marriage relationship. It is a necessity, not a convenience. Apart from my sincere 
yet misguided view on the function and necessity of intimacy. I had other areas that needed the Lord's wisdom before they ruined my marriage. One of the practices that was killing my joy in marriage, unbeknownst to me, was the fact that I was used to being the one who did everything for everybody without taking the time to ask for the help I needed. To be honest, being the go-to person for those I love makes me feel good. When people can come to me with an issue and I'm able to devise and execute a solution, I feel like Superwoman. I feel like I have value and I am worthy of friendship because being a problem solver makes me a friend worth having. But the other side of the coin is that when I am overwhelmed and buckling under the weight of all that I must get done, I often hesitate to request a lifeline from the very people for whom I have done my best. Most times it feels like needing someone's help will make me a burden to them and they would no longer be interested in our friendship. Other times it feels like I do not deserve their help because lots of people have harder lives than mine and they're figuring it out daily. Who am I to pass off my burdens on others? I have come to understand that God created me as a being, not a doing. My worth does not come from my ability to juggle as many things as possible without dropping the ball anywhere. Neither does my worth come from the number of people who score me as proficient in my roles. My worth is in the fact that I was created in the image of God and redeemed by the blood of Christ. Even if I never achieve another goal or do anything further for anyone else, my worth remains. It is as intrinsic as my humanity. Recently, I learned that being a giver who is unwilling to receive from others is rooted in a sense of unworthiness and pride. Quote from Lovey Ajayi Jones, best-selling author and digital strategist. You can find her work at www.awesomelylovey.com. As a new wife, I tried to do as much as I could without having to ask my husband for help. It was my responsibility to manage the home, cook, clean, organize our schedules, and oversee our budget because anything less than that meant that I was not being a great wife. I was afraid to ask my husband for help because I thought he would judge me for not being able to handle the same responsibilities that other wives before me had been executing for centuries without issue. I wanted him to see me as the perfect wife, and I was willing to kill myself trying to keep up with the image. I took pride in my ability to do it all, and admitting I needed someone's help was the same as admitting I was not of the same caliber as the women who worked, excelled at home, and had thriving marriages. I did not want to be the woman who did not measure up in marriage. When life with young children, newborns, then toddlers, forced me to admit that I was indeed not superwoman, I finally hung up my cape. Having worked up the courage to finally ask for help around the house, 
when my husband failed to deliver the type of assistant I needed, I fell apart. Over the course of my marriage, my love language has evolved from words of affirmation and gifts to acts of service and then words of affirmation. Being helped communicated love to me better than almost anything else in the world. So, being denied help when I ask him to help clean up the house and I still come home to a mess and have to stay up till after midnight putting things back in order, for example, made me feel like I did not matter. If he loved me, he would help me. And because he was not helping me, he either did not love me or he did not consider me worthy of his help. This internal script was confirmed every time I asked my husband to do anything pertaining to the children or our household, and he dragged his feet until I did it myself. I was heartbroken. After a while, I decided that it was better not to ask for help and do it myself than to risk asking and have it thrown back in my face. His lack of help was my proof that I was unworthy. When I was a stay-at-home wife and mother, I was petrified of asking for help because what good was I if I could not even keep the house front together by myself? I was not bringing any money to the table. The least I could do was make sure I single-handedly transform our home into the very definition of great biblical marriage, parenting, and financial stewardship. When we would run out of money for expenses, or the kids got sick, or my husband's complaint about an aspect of our relationship, I felt like a failure. I was determining my worth as a human being by how well others graded me in my roles, and it was destroying me. By denying my loved ones the opportunity to help me, I was also denying them the chance to show me that they can be trusted to come through for me in a pinch. I did not mind being the one that others came to, but I hated having to go to others. Looking back now, I know the fear of asking for help is deeply rooted in the trauma of having to fend for myself when I could have really used the help of a trusted loved one, like right after my first assault and the others that followed. I had a family history of not asking for help. As the only daughter in my family and the youngest, my parents raised me in an environment where I did not have to ask for help before it was rendered. My father took care of me as the head of our household and whatever I needed from my mom, she was more than willing to provide. I was also my brother's baby sister, so he would move heaven and earth to make sure I was okay. My husband, on the other hand, is the firstborn of five brothers. He was raised in a household where the siblings knew how to fend for themselves. He looked out for his younger brothers, but he did not consider them helpless. He did not step in to take over tasks or difficult situations for them. He helped as he was needed and as he was asked. 
the dynamics in our families of origin were setting my husband and I up for some disappointed expectations in our own marriage. My husband thinks I'm one of his brothers, an adult who is strong enough and capable enough to handle anything from major car repairs to significant home improvement projects. I, on the other hand, firmly believe that my husband is an extension of my father and brother, a man who should be jumping to my help before I even have to ask, because of course I know how to get my own car serviced or how to hang rods over the window. But why should I have to? Yes, I am the quintessential last born. Pamper me, please. Thank you. The difference in our upbringing is one that we navigate daily. Now that I know what we are dealing with, I am less likely to be offended when my husband does not offer certain types of help without me having to ask. And I am learning the courage to speak my needs rather than internalizing them and hoping he reads my mind. Often, when I say that marriage is work or that marriage is hard, I get pushback from friends who say their marriage is not hard. Noted, but to quote a modern day pop culture icon and philosopher, I said what I said. Nene Leakes, Real Housewives of Atlanta. Marriage is the union of two people who were raised in two different households with different traditions, nuances, traumas, and stories. We are coming together with all of our not-so-smooth pieces to build a life that fits perfectly together. There should be some growing pains. A marriage that has absolutely no moments of transitions in the journey to get better is the anomaly, not the norm. Kudos to the people who have always been on the same page in every way with their spouse since their wedding day. But that is not everyone's story. It certainly is not mine. When we got married, we had a lot of things figured out already. If you had asked me on day one, I would have told you that we were already perfect for each other. But ignorance is bliss. I did not know what I did not know about marriage until I encountered it. I had to learn for myself that it was possible to be absolutely in love with your husband and still be wholly dissatisfied at the state of our relationship. Learning that just because it is imperfect does not mean it is broken probably saved me from ever considering divorce. Some of my fellow singles had the same lofty ideas of what marriage would be until we all crossed the line into covenant. Those of us who struggled the most were grappling with the thought that this is not what I had in mind. Thankfully, the grace, mercy, and wisdom of God met me in my own moment, and I learned that ideal marriages are not handed out with your marriage certificate. You must build it yourself. And sometimes your building materials are imperfect, flawed, and blemished. But if you get the right tools and you saw, hammer, sand, and mold them into what you need, you can have a success story. 
None of it comes ready-made, and there are no guarantees or shortcuts. But when we do the work, we get to reap the fruit of an intentional, functional, and joyous relationship with the one our soul loves. Sometimes, in the journey of marriage, I find myself reacting to my thoughts and my fears about my husband, rather than the reality that stands before me. When I witness other marriages where the wife is being treated like a maid by a clearly ungrateful husband, I hide the fear in my heart. The next time my husband waits on me to act before he bathes the kids or cleans up their messes or take them for haircuts, fear whispers, he thinks you're the maid. And instead of having a conversation that lays out my expectations and my feelings, I blow up. When I have a conversation with a friend about her financially abusive husband who works but refuses to contribute to their household and my husband makes a significant monetary gift to a family member before discussing it with me. Instead of conversing with my partner in life about our financial goals and what we can and cannot afford to spend, I blow up. Fear of being mistreated always leads me to exploding all over the man I call the man of my dreams. It took some work for me to recognize these patterns and I am actively working to break them as we speak. Is my husband perfect? No. Do I think he would do something either foolishly or intentionally to harm me? Also no. Knowing that I married a good man I must do all that is necessary to prevent my unfounded fears from driving the vehicle of my marriage. Marriage is hard enough without a spouse, in this case me, who is actively believing the worst about you. Love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. The moment I stop giving my husband the benefit of the doubt, is the moment we are headed for disaster. This man has spent the better part of the last nine years of our lives showing me love in every way he knows how. Nothing in his demonstrated character shows him as a man without integrity. Until I started treating him like who I know God created him to be, we were having the same fight repeatedly. Sometimes, my husband does do the one thing I fear he would do. He does sin against me in a way that feels intentional. In those moments, I have two options. I would be justified in throwing the evil he has done in his face and reminding him how he has done irreparable harm to our marriage. I would be well within my right to do that because some actions cannot be undone no matter how sorry we may be. But I believe there is a better option and a more excellent way. The difference between what I just described and the method I prefer is the difference between conviction and condemnation. My preferred method for confronting my husband's sin against me is this. I do not minimalize the gravity or impact of what he did. This really hurt me when you did XYZ. But I also take time to try and understand 
what prompted his actions. Then I offer him an example of when I have also failed in a similar way because of a similar motivation and we discuss a path forward. My husband is literally my best friend. It does not make any sense for me to be the one he cannot admit his faults to. But I can create that dynamic in our home if every time he admits a failing or a shortcoming, I respond by panicking or adding my own I told you so to the feelings of guilt he is already experiencing. I weigh my words carefully before I speak them out loud, especially in my marriage. Words mean a lot to me. The easiest way to hurt me is to speak a careless word to or about me. One of my greatest fears is to become the voice the enemy uses to beat my husband down and away from his God-given identity and focus. I find it difficult to yell or speak disrespectfully to my husband without being immediately convicted. I don't want my husband replaying my harsh and careless words in his head when he is feeling especially discouraged or beating down. In this sixth, now seventh year of marriage, I am learning the gift of shutting up. If I cannot bring myself to offer words that build up my husband's spirit and strength because I am discouraged myself or I am just too angry, then I sit in the silence. Sometimes it is a peaceful silence and sometimes it is a I am not talking to you coldness. But either way, I would rather be quiet than careless. Conviction from God tells us the truth in love, even when it is bitter. You have sinned against God. You need to repent, turn back towards God, and away from your sin. What you did has harmed the relationship between you and God, and possibly others as well. But he welcomes you back with open arms and offers the grace you need to do things differently. This is conviction. Condemnation from the enemy says you have sinned against God and you are no longer worthy of his love, acceptance, or forgiveness. There is no hope for you because you were, if you were truly good, you would never have done such a thing in the first place. You are too far gone to be redeemed and you are better off hiding yourself away from God's judgment. Just go your own way. God will never accept you back anyway, and what you have done is too grave to be forgiven. Now, I rather operate more like God than I do the enemy. We have enough accusations against us from the enemy of our souls. I have no desire to add my voice to that of the devil when he wants to discourage and derail my spouse. The only reason I can taper my words while my emotions may be raging is because of the Holy Spirit and his gift of self-control. God shows me daily how a relationship with Christ continuously saves my marriage. I will always thank God that I did not get married before I became a true believer. For those who have that story, I know that God is a redeemer of all things. And I am happy to rejoice in how his grace works all things out for their good and his glory. However, for me, 
marrying before I fully understood God's intention for marriage would have left me at the mercy of the enemy in a way that could have easily destroyed me. Had I listened and insisted on my own way and married what I thought I wanted along this journey, I could very well be divorced today. Nothing outside of the grace of God equips me for marriage. Unless the mercy of God met me in a supernatural way, marrying before I found Christ and some semblance of wholeness would have made a mess of my life as I know it today. The relationships I committed myself to outside of Christ reflected a woman who was living outside of herself and below her God-given purpose. The only thing I had in common with the men I chose in my past was my sinful, backslidden state of mind. The minute I began to gain any sense of coming to myself, or if I grew in any capacity spiritually, I immediately had nothing in common with these men. Imagine being married to a man who sees my growth in Christ as a threat to our marriage. Imagine being married to someone who only enjoys your company if you are living in flagrant disobedience to God. Imagine a spouse who sees your growing godliness as something to discourage rather than embrace. That to me would have been the height of dysfunction and misery because no matter how far away I ran from God and his principles for those 26 years of living in the world, the seed of his word that had been deposited into my life and my heart via regular church attendance and parents who valued Christ would never let me go. I would have eventually had to make peace with the struggles between what my flesh wanted to do and what my spirit already knew was the right thing to do. My husband and I are compatible because we married in wholeness. Not that we were both without fault or that we were perfect when our journey began, but we were not drawn to each other by our traumas, our brokenness, or our mutual love of sin. Christ drew us to one another. Yes, I was attracted to him. He is tall, chocolate, and handsome. I couldn't help it. But there were plenty of handsome men who did not inspire the conviction in my heart that I had regarding my husband. I met my husband while I was living in obedience to Christ. I met my husband while walking out my own wholeness in Jesus. And I met my husband after I was already undoing the work that trauma and bondage had done on my understanding of relationships for all the years before. My journey is mine alone, not a prescription on how to get married. However, while I was newly married, I did arrogantly believe that my way was the only God-ordained way into a relationship. If you met me during those years, I apologize for my lack of humility and my presumption in telling you how God should write your own love story. I know better now, and I am committed to doing better. Because of how God shaped me, it was important for the future of my marriage that I did not get married while in sin. 
even when I was singled, I had determined in my heart that any man who would lead me into sin could never be my husband, and I would break up the relationship before I married such a man. With that mindset, it would have been hard for me to accept that any man I dated prior to knowing Christ could be transformed into the man that God intended for me to marry and live with for the rest of my life. I wanted a clean slate, and I thank God that he gave me a fresh start with the man that I married. Considering how long my husband and I have known each other, if we had made the foolish decision to date one another at any point prior to the time that God opened our eyes to really see each other, I'm beyond convinced that we would have used and dumped one another a long time ago. As teenagers or even in my very early 20s, while I was single, such a relationship between us would have been fueled by flesh rather than led by the Holy Spirit. He would have been just another dysfunctional relationship inspired by mutual physical attraction, but with no substance. Even if eye candy alone could have sustained us for months as a couple, eventually we would have ran into the dysfunction and inner brokenness that fractured all of our previous relationships with other people. Apart from that, the man I knew at 28 years old and counting was a far cry from the 19-year-old I first met. My husband did a lot of growing physically, emotionally, and spiritually to be properly equipped for a wife of my caliber. This is not a brag by any means. I come with my share of baggage. His 19-year-old self was not equipped for that kind of weight. If he was not already dealing with his own broken understanding of romantic relationships and what it means to be a man, dating me before he was ready would have made him worse, not better. I am grateful that my husband and I were compatible when we met and started our journey towards the altar. I am thankful that we had more in common than sin that joined us together. I am thankful that all our children were born within our marriage. Again, this is not a dig at anyone whose story is different from ours. This is me acknowledging that the grace it takes to work within circumstances beyond what ours happens to be is a grace that not everyone has. I often try to imagine what our lives would be if my husband and I were teenage parents or people who married outside of Christ. And it's impossible for me to wrap my head around what that life would look like for us. I want to imagine us living for Christ under those circumstances. And my brain simply cannot make the connection to get us to this same level of obedience to and dependency on God. This is the primary reason that I am so awestruck by couples whose foundations began outside of Christ, but who were able to make the transition to a life that is fully surrendered to Christ and a foundation that has been rebuilt by God himself. The Bible says that if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Meaning that if the very bedrock 
of what you use to build your life is fallible? Where is the hope of building rightly? Marrying in a backslidden or unrepentant state would have been my own definition of a faulty foundation. Marriage has set the tone for so much of my life. I cannot imagine marrying someone who does not agree with God's purpose for me. Like I said before, a husband who did not give me the freedom to be myself, including the self that loves and wants to honor God wholeheartedly, would have killed me because he would have crushed my spirit and I would have shriveled up inside and been blown away by the winds of this world. I thank God daily for my covering. He is perfectly suited for my yesterday, today, and tomorrow. My husband knows my past and he covers it with his love. My husband sees my present and loves me as I am. My husband glimpses my future and he encourages it as his home. There is nothing more I can ask for. This concludes the episode as well as our reading of chapter 4, Marriage and the Newlywed Blues. So join us next time where we will pick up from chapter 5 as we explore mayhem and motherhood. Have a wonderful week. Take care.